Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition and another year of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and welcome to 2022. I have to say good riddance to 2021. Uh, when we made it to the end of 2020, I, I assume things could only look up. But well... We all saw how wrong I was by that. Um, so we will see what 2022 has in store for us. Um, I don't know about you. I uh, It's normally pretty hit and miss whether I actually make it to midnight on New Year's Eve. But this time I was actually determined to do so because I was so determined to make sure that 2021 was actually finally truly dead and wasn't <laughs> complaining that time is rigged and 2022 is a fake year or that Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper had the power to just reinstate it. And um, as soon as I was reassured that none of those things were happening, I fell asleep. Uh, so that was my New Year's. I, what about you? I can't imagine you're much of a party animal uh, on New Year's Eve, but uh, how were your holidays generally? I am not a party animal, but in the upset of all upsets, I too stayed up until midnight. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, good Lord, the torture of flipping between the various countdown shows. Apparently, every living celebrity with a decent personality has better things to do on New Year's Eve. And uh, and same goes for every decent musical artist. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I should have just gone to sleep right after dinner. Um, but, you know, I, I guess it was an appropriately disappointing end to a generally disappointing <laughs> year. Although... I'll take issue with uh, some of your suggestion that, that perhaps 2021 was on the level of 2020. I, I think it was definitely superior to 2020, just not by the leaps and bounds we hoped it would be. Um, I'll, I'll take 2021 over 2020 any day. And uh, the, the way that uh, 2021 ended uh, certainly was not great. Uh, the Raskin family had a fun California vacation planned. That got scrapped due to Omicron and uh, not wanting to test positive far from home and get stuck out there and have flights canceled and so forth. Uh, so instead, our big adventure of winter break was a day at Hershey Park in late December. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not really complaining. I don't mind the quote unquote boring life. Uh, but this uh, winter break we just had definitely sucks for my kids to not go anywhere and be stuck inside a lot. Um, but, hey, we're moving on to 2022, which... Uh, I'd say the stage is set nicely for this to be the best year in at least three years. Uh, it's, it's getting off to a lousy start, but still, the bar is unbelievably low. So uh, yes. don't screw it up, 2022. Yes, I think the last year, 2022, that had such a low bar to clear was 1946. So, <laughs> okay. come on. That's slightly this. before my time. Well, indeed, yes. But I think we can all assume there was improvements were required in 1946. I, I, from what I know about the era, yes, I, I would uh, confirm that statement. <laughs> all right. Oh, God, venturing way off reservation in terms of our knowledge here. But anyway, uh, we were off from podcasting last week, as I'm sure you all noticed. Uh, but hopefully you got a chance to listen to our two-part documentary-style retrospective on Manny Pacquiao, which featured Freddie Roach, Al Bernstein, Larry Merchant, uh, and many more. If not those two episodes are still available uh, for download in all the usual podcast places uh this week on our first podcast of 2022 eric will count down his all-time top five boxers who uh, crossed over either to or from another sport uh we will cover two weeks worth of news and we will preview the first showtime boxing card of the year uh that's friday's showbox triple header featuring six undefeated fighters but we'll start this week and this year by welcoming a guest. Uh, on our final non-documentary style podcast of 2021, we recapped the year that was and revealed our awards picks. Now we turn the page and look ahead at what 2022 might have in store. And joining us to give his insights is a friend of ours and a friend of the podcast. And an increasing rarity in the world of boxing coverage, an actual real journalist who does things like seeking out confirmatory sources and checking his copy. Please welcome back to the podcast, our favorite throwback. Boxing Scenes, Keith Idek. Keith, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Well, I really appreciate that, uh, that beautiful intro. I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> we, we, you know, I, I do sometimes feel like I'm operating in a world where real journalism doesn't exist sometimes. So uh, I do appreciate the, uh, 
the praise because it ain't easy covering this sport sometimes as you guys as you guys well know you know indeed right yes Thank- thankfully i've never had to do it as like a day-to-day reporter uh so i have that much more respect for for what you do because that part uh looks looks like a challenge um but uh let's let's uh <laughs> let's start our conversation about uh what awaits in 2022 with the heavyweight division this division has has teased us in recent years sometimes delivering sometimes not we got both ends of that spectrum in 2021 we got an all-time classic title fight in Fury Wilder 3, but we didn't get Fury Joshua, the biggest fight that could have been made in all of boxing. Now, as we uh, enter 2022, Fury's plan to fight Dillian White is in some flux, while Usyk Joshua 2 is expected in April. What's your leaning on who wins the Usyk Joshua rematch, if you have one? And, and do you think we're more likely than not to see Fury versus that winner before the end of the year? Well, I certainly hope so, guys. I, I would expect Usyk to beat Joshua again. I, I just didn't see any evidence during the first fight or anything that's happened thereafter that would lead me to believe that Anthony Joshua was going to improve enough between their two fights to be able to beat him in the second fight. He, the biggest mistake he made, of course, was even though he was told not to by his by Rob McCracken and virtually everyone else, do not try to outbox this guy. That is what he tried to do to for the most part. Uh, he can't try to do that again unless he would. he's the most pig-headed person on earth. I don't think he would try to do that again. Um, but I don't think he's an. I don't think he'll be able to steamroll Alexander Usyk either. So, um, and he's not a big. Anthony Joshua was a puncher, but not a big enough puncher. He's not a a Deontay Wilder type puncher. You know, he's more of a um, an accumulative puncher. You know what I mean? He's not a he's not a one punch knockout guy for the most part. And and Usyk is too smart and too good defensively, I think, to get to get caught with that type of shot and lose that fight. So I, I would expect Usyk to win again. Um, and, and let's hope that, that Usyk winds up fighting Tyson Fury for all the marbles by the end of the year. Of course, Joshua Fury is a bigger fight. So, I mean, from a right. commercial standpoint, we would like to see Joshua Fury and certainly in, in the UK, they would, it, it, assuming Omicron, you know, changes here over the next few months and they're able to have a huge crowd in the UK. That's the fight. But it might happen in Saudi Arabia anyway, so I guess maybe that doesn't matter what's going on in the UK, right? I actually spoke to a trainer yesterday um, that I know very well from New Jersey from my days at the paper, who, believe it or not, spent a lot of time in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. That's where he lived for a very long time. He was training boxers at a gym there. Hmm. And he said that when they thought that the Joshua Fury fight was going to be made, you have no idea how big of a deal that was that that fight was coming to Saudi Arabia. He said it was all over the newspapers there. I guess they still have newspapers in Saudi Arabia. Um, and he said it was it was a real big deal there. So if that winds up happening, if that winds up being the course that we go down here, I mean, it would be a huge fight in Saudi Arabia too. Um, but I do think that, uh, that Tyson Fury will fight someone other than Dillian White in March or April. He'll beat whoever that opponent is, I think, and, th- and then we'll be in position to fight the uh, Joshua Usyk winner. So heavyweight's the division that the mainstream pays the most attention to always. But welterweight uh, is where the best fighters tend to hang out. Um, And there are currently two welterweights in everyone's pound-for-pound top five, Terence Crawford and Neville Spence. Uh, The clock is ticking on their time before the likes of Boots Ennis and Virgil Ortiz Jr. are ready to challenge them. What are you hearing about Crawford's promotional future? And if Spence gets by Ordenis Ugas... Can we finally count on Crawford Spence happening in 2022? Well, I have heard a lot about Terrence Crawford signing with ProBellum. That's been the, the rumor mm-hmm. that's been circulating for the last couple of months. Um, I haven't really seen any tangible evidence that that's coming necessarily. And based on what Terrence Crawford has said publicly about who he wants to fight, he has named all PBC fighters. He has said that his, his three, three guys on his wish list are Ugas, and not in this order necessarily, but Ugas, Thurman, and Spence. So to do that, he would have to sign with, with Al Heyman in some capacity in an advisory uh, agreement or something like that to, uh, to be affiliated with PBC and to get those fights. Now, Ugas would be taken off the table, of course, if he loses to Errol Spence in, in April, or, uh, which is when we think that fight is going to happen. And I think Errol Spence will beat Ugas. So let's just say it's down to Thurman and Spence. Um, He's going to have to be affiliated with PBC to do that. And I don't see how signing with ProBellum would make that any easier. And in some ways, it would be an indication that maybe he doesn't really want those fights mm-hmm. because that's been the claim by uh, Crawford's detractors throughout the years. Well, if he really wanted these fights, he wouldn't keep re-signing with top rank. He would just make it much easier on himself and become affiliated with PBC and Al Heyman 
and, and get the fights that he wants. Another thing that I've been told that I think is interesting as it relates to Spence Crawford guys is that because Crawford is not really a PBC guy, even if he did become a PBC guy, they're not just going to hand him Errol Spence in his first fight with PBC. They're going to make him quote unquote, earn it. Now, I don't quite understand that because once he's your guy, what is the difference? And that is the fight that everyone wants to see. But I kind of think the, the underlying thing here that kind of gets overlooked a little bit is that both, and maybe a lot to some degree, Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence think that their fight is worth a lot more money than anyone else thinks. Mm-hmm. And that maybe more than anything is why they haven't fought. People think that Errol Spence wants the fight less than Terrence Crawford. Maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe based on some of the things that he has said publicly would make people feel that way. But I think ultimately they would want to fight each other, but they're not making $15 million a piece for guarantees. That's that doesn't exist. So if that's what the asking price is, then the fight won't happen. I find it very interesting. The notion that Crawford might have to somehow earn his spot against Spence, but that's just a whole other deal. I don't agree, Kieran. I don't agree (laughs) with that at all. Oh, I know. I know. It is what I've been told. And I said, well, what does it matter once he's a PBC guy? Right. Well, he's not really a PBC guy. He's really still perceived as an outsider, which might be why he might not sign with PBC. I don't know. Mm. He feels that way. And that's been relayed to him. And he's like, ah, you know, screw these guys. You know what I mean? But if you want those fights for your legacy and look, he's 34, he'll be 35 in October or September, maybe whatever it is. He's Mm going to be 35 by the end of this calendar year. He's not in his physical prime anymore, although you wouldn't be able to tell it based on how he fought against Sean Porter. Um, but, you know, he's got to take this fight now, yeah. you know, and, and Spence is, I think he'll be 32 this month, I believe. I think he turns 32. So, you know, the, the show has to get on the road if it's going to happen at some point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so we've covered the uh, biggest potential fights in, in the two hottest divisions. Let's talk about the biggest star in the sport although which division he'll compete in is unknown. What are you hearing about Canelo Alvarez in terms of whether he's actually going to cruiserweight to grab a belt? Uh, And as this is the Showtime Boxing Podcast, we ought to ask, does it look like his next fight will be on Showtime pay-per-view? And is everything just going to be one fight deals for him, do you think, for the rest of his career? I think the answer to that, Eric, is yes, because it makes the most business sense for Canelo Alvarez to just remain a free agent and create a bidding war every time that you fight, right? I mean, he, he was very happy, very satisfied with the way he was treated by Al Heyman, PBC, and Showtime. Uh, they did a great job promoting the Caleb Plant fight. Um, they think that the, that when it's all said and done, the pay-per-view numbers will get to 800,000, which is essentially unheard of in today's day and age. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and, and Caleb Plant was built up on Fox a little bit, but is not really an A-side fighter. So that really speaks to Canelo's star power. Um, but I think he's going to get into a position where he's going to, you know, he's going to pit the zone against Showtime, Showtime against Fox, what, you know, however it might be, because Fox seemingly is only in it for the pay-per-view fights now. Right. I, and it's something that I had reported back in the fall and people said I was crazy and you don't know what you're talking about and yada, yada, yada. How many fights have been scheduled on Fox for 2022 so far? And how many pay-per-view fights have there, you know, that they're, that's what they're in for. I don't know why. Right. I don't I don't see the point of it, to be honest with you, from their standpoint, to remain in boxing only to do 40 to 60 dollar pay-per-views every four to six weeks. But that appears to be the route they're going for the time being. So uh, so maybe they're not as much a player in the Canelo Alvarez sweepstakes as Showtime and zone. The question I would have if he is going to move up to cruiserweight. OK, this seems to be more Eddie Reynoso's. Uh, idea than his. And I thought it was interesting that last week Canelo Alvarez made a point of saying that Eddie Reynoso went to the WBC convention and said that without even telling him he was going to do it. So maybe this is more Eddie Reynoso's dream of him becoming a five division champion and becoming a cruiserweight champion. That is Canelo Alvarez's, right? Because if you're Canelo Alvarez and you care about your legacy, which he obviously does, why would you want to fight Makabu for the cruiserweight championship when the WBC might even acquiesce to Canelo? It would seem anyway, and lower the weight limit for the cruiserweight division to 190 pounds. He's not going to get any credit for becoming a cruiserweight champion. If the weight limit is moved specifically for him to fight at cruiserweight. And and then they might even do it at a catch weight below 190 pounds. Then it's not really even a cruiserweight fight. So what is the point of it? Really? If I'm him, the other thing, and it's probably first and foremost, really, 
who in the world is going to pay Canelo Alvarez a $40 million guarantee to fight a, a, a fighter from the Congo, the Great Republic of Congo, wherever he's from, who's paying him that to, to fight him? Right. Th- that, that money's not there. Now, Al Heyman will pay him a $40 million guarantee to fight Jamal Charlo on Showtime, on a Showtime pay-per-view. And DAZN, even though they've become more cost-conscious in, in recent months over the last year or so, th- I don't think they would pay him $40 million to fight Dimitri Bivol, but they might pay him 30, 35, just to, just for the public perception of them beating out Showtime and PBC and bringing him back to the zone. That might be a worthwhile play for them. So those are the options in my opinion, because I don't think while I would love to see him fight Artur Beterbiev, that everyone wants to see that to see if how Canelo would hold up to that type of punching power, as opposed to Bivol, who's much more of a boxer, of course. And everyone thought that Kovalev was basically a shell of what he once was when they fought, although it was a very close fight before he knocked Kovalev out. Um, I think we don't want to see him fight better, Biev, but who in the world thinks that Bob Arum is going to come, come up with $40 million for him to fight Artur Beterbiev? They might, not, they might not come up with $20 million. They just don't operate that way. And it's not really going to be a difference maker on ESPN. If they do an ESPN pay-per-view with Canelo, it's not really going to make all that much of a difference to them, I don't think, especially if it's a one-off and he's just going to go to the highest bidder in the next fight. They want Beterbiev to fight either Joe, they wanted to fight Joe Smith, obviously, and it's going to take Joe Smith getting past Callum Johnson later this month for that fight to happen, but they'll revisit that. And they're just going to have to pay Joe Smith more money. You know, they, they offered him, I believe it was 1.5 million. I think it was to fight better Biev, and he obviously wants more. So if they can get that number up, I would see better Biev fighting Joe Smith and then Canelo picking between the, I think the two options guys are, are fighting Jamal Charlo in a Showtime pay-per-view which will require Jamal Charlo to move up eight pounds to 168 or fighting Dimitri Bivol on, uh, on the zone. I think those are the two, the two. And if I had to pick, and I know this is the Showtime boxing podcast and I am a Viacom <laughs> CBS a bit, but yada, yada, yada. I think the smart money, if you were going to bet on who Canelo fights next, I think it would be Jamal Charlo in a Showtime pay-per-view fight because commercially it's a much bigger event. And I think Al Heyman will make him enough of a guarantee well, that will be the worthwhile play for Canelo Alvarez. Well, I'm glad you went that way, because if you had said the opposite, we would have had to edit it out anyway. I'd have been, so, I'd have been yeah. fired, probably, right? Kieran and I don't make that decision, but uh, most likely, yeah, you would have been. So good, well, good yeah, choice exactly. by you. They make, they make those decisions on Twitter, right, as we learn. Right. Right. Say, you know, you know, you're a shill for – one day I'm a shill for Bob Arum. The next day I'm a shill for Showtime. It's like, guys, right. make up your mind. Man. You don't come. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned Canelo against Better BF, and, and Eric for years has been talking about how that's the one fight uh that he really wants to see uh what about the fight that you would most want to see in 2022 in any weight division if you had all the power if you weren't shilling for everybody and instead <laughs> were the person for whom everybody shilled you could make any one fight what's what is it if i, if I was the kaiser soze of boxing i would say <laughs> i would like um I really would want to see Crawford fight Spence, to be honest with you, because it's a fight that's been built up for several years here, and it kind of seems like it's slipping away and we might not see it. So that would probably, because they're the two best welterweights in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously they're both undefeated people. They both fought Porter. There's more buzz for that fight maybe now than ever based on how Crawford looked against Porter. And honestly, if they're realistic with their, their financial expectations, and I think I, I think you can get them to become reasonable at some point because you're still going to make a lot of money from this fight. Um, I think you can get them to do it. Um, it's going to take, of course, Errol Spence beating uh, your Dennis Ugas, which is not an easy fight. Uh, but if he beats him in the spring, uh, I see no real reason why that fight couldn't come together because honestly, what is left for Terrence Crawford to do? Mm-hmm. Look, he could fight Keith Thurman. That, that's all dependent on how Keith Thurman looks against Mario Barrios in a few weeks here. Um, yeah, people would buy it, but it's like, dude, stop wasting time. Just get to, you know, let's get to the main event here. We don't need you to see the fight, the fight, the lesser welterweights. We need to see you fight Spence. And how, how much more time are you going to waste? Because as I said, he's going to be 35 years old in September. He doesn't have much more time to waste of his physical prime. So let's just try to make it happen. I, I hope guys, if that's the fight that we see this year, based on doing this for a living every day, I would say I'm pessimistic um about it happening but um you know but i don't see ugas beating spence i don't think that would be the roadblock toward it happening i just think money 
maybe more than anything might become the biggest obstacle. I'm surprised you didn't go with uh, Charlo versus Andrade for your dream fight. It's my right. understanding that people well, that, are clamoring. That is the that, biggest that, that is, that is our, our dear friend Chris Mannix's uh, <laughs> you know, dream of all dreams. In fact, last night in a text exchange we had during the Fox fights, I mentioned Andrade to him in a very derogatory, a very derogatory <laughs> way, and I think he might have blocked me on his phone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing with the open-ended questions, um, who's a fighter or two that you're expecting to see make a huge leap in 2022 and really have a breakout year, whether whether going from prospect to champion or from champion to superstar? Who are your picks for one or two real breakout fighters? A fighter that I would like to see that happen for, and he's, he doesn't technically apply to either of those two categories, but it's, it's Boots Ennis, obviously. I mean, he, to me, Jerron Ennis is the most talented fighter in the entire sport. I, 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 I tend to be conservative in my estimations of fighters and such, but this kid is the whole package as far as I can tell. And now all it's going to take, and I don't mean all because it's going to be very difficult, is getting elite welterweights to fight him. And I don't know how you do that uh, because there, there's, a th- there's something going on behind the scenes here, guys, that is going to prevent Jerron Ennis from fighting in the, in, from participating in the types of fights that he wants. Look, the bottom line is, he is not affiliated with PBC or Al Heyman. He has a, a multi-fight contract with Showtime, and he has fought on PBC shows. Um, but I think people are starting now, as great as he looked against um, Thomas DeLorme, because no mm-hmm. one ever did that to Thomas DeLorme. Right. Uh, he, you know, he's a, he's a gatekeeper at this point. He's an older fighter and everything. But in his previous fight against Amantis Stanionis, he looked pretty good, and he gave Stanionis a very competitive fight. And people are high on Stanion. It's not nearly as high as Darren Ennis, but he's a very, very good welterweight as well. And Jerron Ennis just blew him out, right? And in the fight before that, it looked like Sergey Lipinets, who's more of a natural 140 pounder, but a top, top level fighter for the most part, he embarrassed him. So the next natural step for him is to fight the top guys. The problem for him, unfortunately, as it relates to what Eric mentioned about him taking that next step in 2022, those people are not going to fight him. They're not. And until he becomes, he, he is promoted by Cameron Duncan, who is one of the best talent evaluators that I've ever seen in this sport. And you can look at his history and the roster of fighters that he's had. He's on guys very early, Terrence Crawford among them, and obviously Jerron Ennis here. And he's got Brandon Lee, who's fought on Showtime a bunch of times. Um, look, until he can come to some sort of agreement, if he's willing to do that, and if Al Heyman's willing to do that, to work with Jerron, to work together in building Jerron Ennis into the stu- superstar that he should be, Jerron Ennis is, is kind of going to remain stagnant because he's not, he's going to continue, he will have to continue fighting the level of fighters that he beat in 2021. You know, how many of the Thomas Delorme types, the Sergey Lipinets types are there for him to fight? Frankly, before people get bored with it because you know how good this kid is and and how many, you know, they're going to tune in because he's an otherworldly talent. I mean, I can't emphasize enough guys, how good this kid is. I mean, he's a Philly guy. I know Eric is obviously very, you know, has been well aware of boots on us for a very long time, but the kid, I mean, he's the whole package. Now, of course, the the only thing that we haven't seen is him in there against an elite welterweight, but that's not his fault. He wants the elite welterweights. They won't fight him. So he's in a very weird position so while I would like to say that that he's the guy that's going to take that next step, is he going to be allowed to take that next step? And that's a, you know, he's 24 now. And, and I just wonder how, when he's going to get, and he's a very professional kid. He comes from a boxing family. Two of his brothers were, you know, were veteran fighters who were like, you know, borderline contenders and such, but um, the, they're a boxing family. So he's not going to, he won't become complacent and, um, and not train hard and everything. I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried about, him wasting 2022 for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Oh, that's bummed me out for the start of 2022. Thanks a lot. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let, let's wrap it up with, a, with some real quick hitters. Give you your thoughts on, on these in about 30 seconds apiece. First, Triller, a significant part of the boxing landscape or not? Um, <laughs> they, look, I, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, God bless them for getting people to buy these rap battles and all that kind of stuff. But the boxing has been minimized. So they, they're, they're a smaller player in the sport and that they're spending money. And it's good for some of the fighters who wind up fighting on these triller cards. But I don't really understand what they're doing uh, for the most part, because it seems to be like flushing money down the toilet in boxing. Um, and, and I think them defaulting 
on the Teofimo Lopez, George Cambosis uh, bid that they won back in February. I think that was a very telling sign of the type of money they're going to spend on boxing in this year. All right. Uh, number two, Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano. Does it happen? And if it does, any chance we start getting three minute rounds? Boy, we would love those three minute rounds because you, there would definitely be more knockouts in women's boxing if they mm-hmm. had that extra minute per round. And, and a lot of the, the top women's fighters will tell you that. Uh, I think we will see that fight in April at Madison Square Garden. Um, that seems to be the direction it's headed. Uh, it's finally going to happen. And thankfully so, because it's, it's, it's one of the, it, it might be the best fight that can be made in women's boxing. Uh, I think they'll do a good crowd at Madison Square Garden for the fight. And, uh, you know, Amanda Serrano's people, frankly, made a mistake walking away from what would have been a career high purse by, by you know, an infinite number, basically. Um, and the fight will, the fight will happen in, in April. And I think people will really be looking forward to it. And it'd be a, be a great night for women's boxing when they fight. All right. And finally, and hopefully we'll have you on before we, we find out whether this is true or not. Uh, Eric and I have been talking for the last two years now about podcasting from International Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend. How much an epidemiologist as you are? What do you think of the likelihood of us being uh, podcasting from Canastota in June? Well, if it doesn't happen this year, we're going to have like six Hall of Fame classes in one, <laughs> in one year. And there's not enough room in Canastota for all that. I think they'll do their best guys to try to do this because they obviously haven't done it the last two years. Uh, they'll do their best to do it, but it's all dependent on, on where we go with this, with this Omicron variant and, you know, what can, I don't think we're headed toward any shut real shutdowns in the U S just based on what, how it paralyzed our economy before. Um, so I, I guess fingers crossed would be my best answer. I guess the, my most educated guess would be, let's keep our fingers crossed and hope it happens because, you know, Lou DeBello has got a lot to say and he's got to get up there on that <laughs> stage and he's got a lot to say. So, uh, let's hope it happens. <laughs> I think they should they should make Lou like sort of like the pre-show or something. Give him a few hours right. kind of before yeah. everyone gets there. Get it all yeah. out of his system. Right. He, he might need a whole day, you know, <laughs> right. develop parade where he just goes off on every top. Yeah, maybe like mind, when, you know? Wednesday of induction week is <laughs> yeah. Lou DeBella's day. It's all his. Why not? Yeah. He'll do it. <laughs> hey, Keith, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate it. And thanks for giving up a little bit of your time on the New Year's weekend. So thanks very much, buddy. No, my pleasure, guys. I appreciate you guys having me. You guys do a great job on the podcast and I really do appreciate the praise, guys. Thanks a lot, man. All right. So uh, that was a look ahead at what all of 2022 might have in store for the entire sport. Let's narrow our focus and look ahead specifically to this Friday, the first Showtime boxing broadcast of the year, a showbox card from Orlando, Florida, the home of Mickey and Donald and Goofy becomes the home of Barry and Raul and BC. Uh, and Gordon Hall has put together a very showboxy card to kick off the new year. Six fighters with a combined record of 80 and 0 with 57 knockouts, barring draws, three O's must go. In the main event, a lightweight 10-rounder. It's Luis Nunez of the Dominican Republic, 15-0, 11 KOs, against Puerto Rico's Carlos Arrieta, 14-0, with eight knockouts. Nunez is the much younger of the two prospects. He's just 22 compared to 27 for Arrieta. And on his 22nd birthday in September, Nunez made his showbox debut, scoring a 10-round shutout win over Javon Garnett in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. My reaction to that win was that it was not exciting, but it did suggest a prospect with a high ceiling. Kieran, what do you recall from seeing Nunez in action a little over three months ago? And how big a step up does this appear to be for Arietta, whose last three fights were two six-rounders and a four-rounder? Honestly, I remember virtually nothing of that fight. <laughs> um, I had to go back and check our post-fight podcast. Uh, it's so weird because I recall clearly the opener um between otar uh Arinosian and alejandro guerrero which mm-hmm. i'll ask you to talk about in a bit yeah. um and i remember the main event between Saul sanchez and Tariqo quinn because there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot to remember about that uh, except that we got our prediction spectacularly wrong as uh, sanchez won that uh within a round but i really struggled to conjure up an image of that nunez fight and maybe that's a compliment in the sense that as you mentioned it's sort of devoid of drama uh, Nunez won every round, basically, I think. But it also suggests that there was perhaps not a great deal about his performance that really stood out. So I went back and watched some YouTube footage to remind myself of him. Um, and yes, I'm reminded that, as you said, he looks like a, a technically solid prospect with some real potential there. Uh, not ye- particularly exciting, necessarily, or at least not yet particularly exciting. But certainly, you know, he seems to have a lot of fundamentals down. So he's got some real room to grow there, I think. Um, as for Arietta. Yeah, this does appear to be a big step up for him. Um, 
like you said, not only were his last fights were two six-rounders and a four-rounder, they were against opponents with a combined record of 15 and 29 at that. And 13 of those wins and 24 of those losses were on the ledger of just one of <laughs> right. those three. Um, he's fought only two opponents with winning records. One, also a Nunez, Ricardo Nunez, entered the ring with a record of 29 and 10. And on a four-fight loss streak, that's now a seven-fight loss streak. Um, uh, the other, Martin Diaz, was 15, 9 and 1 and is now 17, 11 and 2. And yeah, look. Records don't necessarily mean a huge amount when you're building up a prospect. But Arietta's 27, as you said. He's been boxing since 2015. So you would think by now he should have been stepping it up a little bit. Um, his quality of opposition does appear to be lower than that of Nunez to this point, even though Nunez is the younger guy with a shorter career. Um, I've seen a little footage of, of, of him as well, Arietta. He looks to be a more aggressive guy mm-hmm. than Nunez. Uh, looks like he's got quite a determined body attack from what I've seen. Yeah. But he does appear to throw those body shots quite wide, and, and he sort of looks like he leaves himself open to being caught between those punches by a technical guy like Nunez. <laughs> I made a note when I was watching them, although I chuckled when I was doing it, seems a little slow with those punches. And then I thought about how I said that about Cody Crowley a couple <laughs> right. of weeks ago and how that turned out. Um, but it feels actually uh, as if I'm getting a little close to coming up with the predictions. So... We could just go ahead and go straight into the prediction for this, yeah. if you like. Um, as devoted listeners know, and I'm sure you're all devoted, uh, for our yearly picks competition, we only do the main event for Showbox Cards. I'm the defending champion, so I'll go first, keep this thing going to kick off the season. Um, and it's always tricky making Showbox predictions, especially when it's someone who hasn't been a, a regular uh, a, a feature on, on Showbox. You know, we're, we're doing our best here based on the footage we've seen. But what I've seen, especially when married to the two guys' records, suggests to me this might be a bit too much of a leap up to continue answering your question for Arietta. He, he looks like he's got potential. I'm not entirely sure how high his ceiling is. I'm not sure if it's as high as Nunez's is. Um, and despite his younger age, Nunez does look to me as if he's farther along in, a career, in his career. He seems like he's already a bit technically better. Uh, he's not one, I think, to put himself in a position to make a lot of mistakes. He looks like he's happy to be in control of a fight without feeling the pressure to, to open up or take any chances. Might not make him the most exciting of fighters, but I think that will serve him well against a perhaps more open and less compact foe like Arietta. I think Nunez may end up controlling this one by the end. Uh, I do expect Nunez to win by a unanimous decision. All right, uh, I shall make my pick, and I shall uh, go ahead and just uh, spoiler. Uh, we're going to start the year tied. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, well, we've already started the year tied at zero zero, but we ah, will uh, continue right. the year tied after the first uh, fight. It, like you, I struggle to pinpoint how good Arietta is based on the information that we have. Um, you know, you watch his fights on YouTube, or, or specifically his highlights of his fights on YouTube, and he looks tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really aggressive, like you said, big left hook, digs to the body viciously. You squint, he almost looks like a prime Julio Cesar Chavez, but again, it's against guys not punching back in the clips right. we're seeing. Um, and so you just don't know if it means anything because of who he's doing it against. You highlighted those records of his last three opponents. I mean... Yeah, 13 and 24 is is the good one. Um, He's uh, only faced two opponents with winning records his whole career, and one of them was that uh, Ricardo Nunez two years ago, and Arietta escaped with a majority decision, Mm. and his team promptly eased up on the quality of opposition. So I just don't see the evidence that he can get it done at this level against someone with the skill and technique of Nunez, you know, who may or may not be an elite prospect. We don't know yet, but he was at least an elite amateur. Um, yeah, I guess to an extent, this will be about who can impose his style. Um, the word that I used for Nunez last time out after watching him on Showbox was measured. He, he likes mm. to box outside side and fight that measured fight. And the question is what will happen when someone makes him uncomfortable, something Javon Garnett couldn't or at least didn't do. Arietta, obviously, his goal is to force a fight and make Nunez uncomfortable. But, you know, based on his quality of opposition so far, despite how good he looks in some of those highlights, I, I just kind of find myself doubting that he can pull it off. So, like you, I'm going with Nunez by unanimous decision. All right. So, in some respects, 2022 is much like the previous, what, eight years. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, in the co-feature, uh, we have an eight-rounder, also a lightweight. 
Um, once again, we have one Showbox alum and one new face. The alum is the guy I just mentioned, Otar Pitbull Aronosian, who on that same September Showbox card that featured Luis Nunez, improved his record to 10-0 with six KOs with a lopsided eight-round decision over Alejandro Porkchop Guerrero. But the 28-year-old from the country of Georgia may just be in tougher in his second Showbox outing, taking on 26-year-old Starling Castillo of the Dominican Republic. He's 16-0 with 12 KOs and fresh off a unanimous 10-round decision win over Juan Carlos Burgos. And there are also impressive amateur numbers for both of these guys. Uh, 290 fights for Aronosian, 460 mm. for Castillo. Uh, Eric, what are your takeaways on Pitbull Aronosian from his last showbox outing? Uh, what are your thoughts on Castillo? How do you see their styles meshing? So, Aronosian, my main takeaway is that he seems more to fit the profile of a guy who will be a lot of fun to watch on TV for the next several years than of a future mm. champion. Um, although, he could be both. Um, but mostly, he won that fight easily because of Porkchop Guerrero's terrible defense. Um, as for Castillo... He's a southpaw and he's very long and lean. He's listed online at five foot nine. That can't possibly be right. He looks at least two or three inches taller than mm. that. Um, the thing is, he doesn't always box tall. He uh, brawls probably more than he should. And when he lets his hands go, he has some blatant defensive lapses. Burgos was catching him real clean at times and knocking him backward on those skinny legs. So the style matchup here, if Castillo again chooses to brawl more than he maybe should this should be a hell of a lot of fun I think uh, Castillo is the prospect with maybe the slightly higher ceiling of these two but it might be the wrong style matchup for him and uh, mm. I might make Aronosian a slight favorite um, you know that it, it could turn into a, a rumble and his energy and awkwardness will allow him to get the better of Castillo you know like with Nunez Arrieta I have significant concerns that it could be a bit dull. Mm. With this fight, my expectations for action are a lot higher. And I, I think it's a really close call. This feels like a good piece of matchmaking by Gordon. And uh, I'm glad we're not making picks on this one because I have a hard time <laughs> confidently choosing a winner here. Um, opening the show, another eight-rounder. We go down five pounds to the super featherweight division. It's our third Dominican fighter on the card. Hard-hitting 22-year-old southpaw Edwin De Los Santos. 13-0, 12 knockouts. His last six fights have gone a combined nine rounds. He faces New Haven, Connecticut's William Foster III, who is 13-0 with nine stoppages. This is De Los Santos' first time fighting outside the Dominican Republic. For the 28-year-old Foster, who's nicknamed the Silent Assassin, boxing is in the blood. He's been doing it since age four, and his older brother Charles is an undefeated light heavyweight prospect. Kieran, is this one of those showbox fights where both boxers are stepping up to their toughest tests simultaneously? And any notable insights on either fighter based on the footage available? I've got to say, I'm quite looking forward to this fight, uh, okay. even though, to be perfectly honest, I had not heard of either man before this fight was made. Um, but from looking at footage, they both look to have quite a lot of talent. Um, and also, I'm quite excited about it because this looks like it could be a classic clash of styles here. Um, De Los Santos, to me, looks like he's probably the higher upside guy. You know, the thing you notice about him first is he's fast. Like, his hand speed is, is really impressive. And, and I think the speed of his punches is aided by the fact he's quite compact and short. You know, he's compact in the way he fights. His punches are quite short, which makes them more effective, of course. He keeps his hands up and he brings them back after he throws. Uh, and he's got some quite good upper body movement. Um, with the caveat, as always, that he's been up against a relatively low opposition's level of opposition so far. I, I like what i've seen of him um foster looks like a very different kind of fighter um he's he's a right-hander um much less compact he looks like he's far more willing to throw his backhand from way back hmm. um his feet are generally wider he looks like he you know he's sort of taking up more space in the ring he seems to me to be the kind of style that's more likely to bump up against the ceiling when he faces better more technical boxes but that he's going to be an absolute nightmare to face for opponents a little bit lower down on the scale, just because he's got some skill there and he's he's got some technical ability, but he's also got that slight bordering on wildness about him. Um, he's got good stamina, he's got good energy, likes to fight a fast pace, whereas De Los Santos looks like he might be perfectly content to slow things down a little bit so that he's got that hand speed advantage. It does feel like a step up for both men. But perhaps from what I've seen, especially for Foster, this, you know, we've mentioned Gordon a couple of times 
already. This is a classic Gordon Hall showbox opener, I think. And and I'm really quite looking forward to watching it. Um, were we making picks, I'd probably pick De Los Santos, but I have a sneaky suspicion that whoever wins might be someone to keep a little bit of an eye on, actually. All right. Really looking forward to this card. I think you can measure our excitement for a showbox card based on how many times we name check Gordon Hall along <laughs> yes, the way. 100%. <laughs> so exactly. I think he got three name checks already. Yep. That's a good sign for yep. this one. Um, all right. It's time now for the tweet of the week. The first such honor to be handed out in 2022. And I'm giving it to someone who received this honor at least once last year, maybe twice, I can't recall. It is our friend Patrick Connor, a California-based boxing media type, author of a recent book on Oscar Bonavania. I was not watching the Luis Ortiz-Charles Martin pay-per-view on New Year's night, but I was watching Twitter, refreshing every minute or two because I had a bet on the fight, and uh, Patrick had my favorite tweet Building on one of the great running jokes in boxing, the fact that a lot of people suspect King Kong Ortiz is a bit older than he says he is. And look, maybe he isn't. Maybe his purported date of birth is his actual date of birth. But you can't let the truth get in the way of a good running gag. So here was Patrick's tweet mid-fight. Charles Martin landed a left hand and a bag of Werther's Originals fell out of Luis Ortiz's trunks. <laughs> now, just in case anyone listening doesn't get the joke, Werther's Originals are old grandpa candies. Uh, in the commercials back in the 80s or 90s, they even leaned into it and had a grandfather giving his grandkids the candies. That's how they advertised them. I thought it was a great reference, very well delivered by Patrick. Uh, and in case anyone is curious, yes, I won my bet. Uh, it was on Ortiz by knockout. And uh, I did watch highlights of the fight on Sunday morning, and Ortiz, whatever age he is, is getting pretty close to washed, but he yeah. does still have that power. Uh, got the stoppage in the sixth round after getting dropped twice earlier in the fight. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on the tweet of the week, on the fight, if you saw any of it, or on Werther's Originals? Uh, do, you, do you like a hard caramel? You will be unsurprised to know that I have an open bag of Werther's Originals <laughs> on my desk right now. It's the sugar-free ones, so they're good for me. That's how it works, right? Oh, wow. You are so 50-something going on 70-something. <laughs> yep. No surprise there, though. <laughs> right. um, yeah, no. Uh, that My thought, especially with that second knockdown of he's like yourself, I, I caught highlights. I didn't watch the fight. The second one where he went down from a stiff jab. I mean, he got up again, but it did look like it caught him. It looks to me as if a little bit that probably largely due to those two wars with Deontay Wilder, the the chin at the very least is getting a little cracked now yeah. on, on Ortiz. Um, he prior to those Wilder fights, he he seemed almost invincible, right? I think we might have on our previous podcast might have said that he was sort of the best uncrowned heavyweight out there, and so it seemed a few years back. But but yeah, he he looked a little bit fragile, and especially when this is Charles Martin who's knocking him down twice. Right. Um, the other interesting thing was that there was uh, it was sort of similar that first knockdown. Um, to the stoppage of the Alicia Baumgartner win last year. Do you remember when I've completely forgotten the name of her opponent? She had her out on her feet, like not down. Right. Her. I know. I know and, the one you're talking about now. Yeah. And the referee was brilliant. I thought at that point, and we said he was at the time, and he stepped in and he stopped it. This was almost to that kind of level. I think. I think once he cracked Martin, Martin was standing up, but mm. he was out there. Um, and yeah, maybe that could have been stopped a little bit earlier. Um, for whatever reason, you and I were talking about this uh, uh, offline beforehand, but some kind of weird props to whoever put together the highlights package for this, which <laughs> right. cut straight from nothing to Martin having his glove caught in the ropes and being on the ground to the end of the fight. Right. Uh, not quite sure what that was all about. Probably, as we speculated, something to do with pay-per-view rights and whatnot. But, um, yeah, be difficult to know just from watching those highlights exactly what happened. Yeah, so I, I did find other clips that, uh, you know, very illegally uploaded of, like, people filming their television set or whatever. So I, I, I got more <laughs> of a gist of how the whole final round unfolded than from that weird, strangely edited highlight clip. But uh, – I, I saw enough. I have no regrets about not ordering the review, certainly. Indeed. Hashtag no regrets. That should be, that should be our Ooh. thing for 2022. There you go. I don't know how long right. that'll last. I'm sure <laughs> by the end of this podcast, I'll have a few regrets. But... <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk some news. We have two weeks of news to catch up on. But of course, things 
tend to move slowly over the holidays, so those two weeks added up to basically a fairly typical one-week load of news. And the main event is a combination of two big British boxing news items, including something we touched on with Keith earlier. One half of the news item is that on New Year's Day, the British Boxing Board of Control announced it was suspending all boxing in January to allow doctors and health experts to prioritize their COVID-related work. So no boxing in Britain in January. They will reassess before February. But this means Chris Eubank Jr. versus Liam Williams, among other fights, will be pushed back to February or else will have to relocate to another country. And the other half of the news item involves two British heavyweights, with several sources reporting that Dillian White might have overplayed his hand and negotiated his way out of his heavyweight title shot against Tyson Fury. Bob Arum told IFL-TV that White demanded a $10 million purse, and Arum says that amount is, quote, out of the question. So Arum says White is likely out, and he and Frank Warren are considering either Andy Ruiz or Robert Hellenius next for Fury. But White is in alphabet mandatory, so that might make it harder for the Fury side to just move on. A, a purse bid is currently scheduled for January 11th. Uh, Kieran, what do you make of all this? What's the level of disappointment if it's Fury Ruiz or Fury Hellenius instead of Fury White? And anything to say about the BBBFC's decision? Um, to take the BBBFC decision first, um, just a couple of days into the new year, and I'm I'm going to try not to have another COVID rant. Um, I, I find it interesting and notable that the events are not being suspended because of the risk of transmission at events, but it's to try and give some breathing space right. to to healthcare workers and emergency services and. Um, I, I really applaud that that decision for that reason, actually. You know, so much focus, understandably, on COVID and on, on policy discussions around COVID is on the disease itself, how to stop people catching the We don't want people to get the disease and so on and so forth. But those consequences are extremely severe for those with other health conditions who don't have COVID but are sick or need treatment or hospitalization but can't get it because hospital beds and ERs are, are full of COVID cases. But, you know, that's okay. Anti-vaxxers keep railing against wearing masks and screaming about freedom or whatever. Don't worry about anybody else. Um, but I think that's an important thing to bear in mind, and especially as cases are going to get so high in January with Omicron, it seems. Mm-hmm. Let's always try to remember that there, it's not just about catching COVID or not catching COVID. There are lots of other people who continue to have the health conditions they had beforehand or have right. new ones and so on and so forth. So, I, you know, I, I find myself wondering whether anything like that is likely to happen over here. But honestly, it feels like this country's given up, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely sure that we'll see anything similar happening over here. But given that it looks like Omicron might just tear through everywhere and burn itself out very fast. Right. Um, you know, some kind of a pause like this seems like a pretty good idea, but right. um, we'll see what happens as, as January gets going. Um, as for the other question, see, that wasn't much of a rant, really, was no, it? No, uh, I, I think a perfectly measured and reasonable rant. Okay, thank you. Uh, as for the other question, Fury Ruiz would be kind of fun. I wouldn't mind seeing that. Um, I, I don't have much doubt about who would win it, but it might be fun. Uh, Fury Hellenius would not particularly interest me, other than the fact that, you know, Hellenius is a tall, solid boxer with decent fundamentals. I just don't see it making uh, see it making an interesting challenge. But like I said the other week, I would still really like to see Fury White. I'd be right. a bit disappointed if it doesn't happen on a number of levels. You, you know, you mentioned that he's a mandatory. There's very little functional benefits to any of these san- sanctioning bodies, if indeed any functional benefit to these sanctioning bodies. If they do have a purpose to their existence, it's that at least in theory, they can prevent champions from avoiding dangerous challenges by elevating them to mandatories and, and, and forcing them to happen. It doesn't always happen. You know, one such body, for example, allowed Nassim Hamed to run away from Juan Manuel Marquez for years. Right. Um, others end up making Bernard Hopkins face Murad Hakkar, right? right? So there's there's different sides of all of this. But, um, and one can hardly excuse Fury of Duck in his challenges, uh, especially over the last couple of years. But... You know, White seems to me like he's exactly the kind of fighter that mandatory defenses were designed for. Probably not good enough to beat the champion, but dangerous enough that he just might. Um, But he's been forced to sit out for a while now, um, admittedly while Fury's been taking care of important business. And the sanctioning body for whom he is a mandatory, and uh, as you mentioned, a set of post-pid date, has said that the split will be 80-20 Fury-White, even though it's normally 60-40-ish, give or take. So I guess if it does go to a purse bid, it will be up to White whether he accepts that. 
Um, but I also, I don't know. I also have a feeling that something else is afoot, uh, that decisions have been made. Fury's been posting on social media the last day or so. Um, big announcement coming, he says, and he posted an old photograph of, of him, you know, dressed as if he's going to be in Saudi Arabia, um, and hinting, saying something like, I'm the king of, going to be the king of Saudi Arabia or something to that effect. So I think something might be afoot and I wouldn't be surprised if by the time we reconvene, um, this news has moved on a little bit. Uh, rounding up the rest of the news, uh, two notable fights have had dates and sites announced since our last podcast. The big one. Chocolatito Gonzalez, Juan Francisco Estrada 3. That will be March 5th in San Diego. And on February 12th in England, Daniel Jacobs will meet John Ryder at Super Middleweight. Uh, in other news, more than five years after his last official fight, former 140-pound belt holder Ruslan Provodnikov competed in an exhibition in Russia in late December and then announced afterward that he is retired from boxing. And a couple of sad items to finish with. Uh, Ring announced that David Diamante was seriously injured in a motorcycle crash over the holidays. He was riding his bike in Brooklyn. Sounds like he hit some ice. The bike just went away from under him. He skidded a full city block before slamming into a parked van. He says he just lay there watching car after car pass him by with the people inside staring at him and not stopping. Never stop being you, New York. <laughs> um, until fortunately, a good Samaritan did stop and help. Um, I think he had some spinal fractures some busted ribs. <laughs> Tragically, he is going to need to learn to walk again. Um, but from what I understand, the prognosis is that he should be able to do that. Uh, but that's a lot of work ahead for him. And we send him the very best and most heartfelt of wishes. And longtime referee Tony Perez, who worked major fights from 1968 to 2005, died in December at age 90. Uh, Eric, anything you want to – that's a whole bunch of stuff there. Anything yeah. you want to comment on there? I'll start with, uh, of course, our, our best wishes to David Diamante for full recovery uh, and also best wishes in retirement for Provodnikov. Uh, Tony Perez, he had quite a list of notable fights he officiated, some that stand out. Ali Quarry, Ali's first fight back after his exile. He was the third man in that. Ali Frazier 2, which... Um, not to speak ill of the dead, but uh, Perez muffed that one. He thought he heard the bell late in the second round when Frazier was hurt and may have uh, changed changed a little bit of heavyweight history there. Um, Ali Wepner, which inspired the movie Rocky, Arguello Mancini, Salvador Sanchez, Azuma Nelson, the infamous Louis Resto, Billy Collins fight. Uh. Um, he was the guy who was just a bit slow to stop Ray Mercer, Tommy Morrison. Oh. Um, and he was the referee who made the correct but perhaps difficult decision to disqualify Roy Jones against Montel Griffin. Um, all in all, he was the third man in a lot of noteworthy fights, not always above criticism, but a guy who was at the top of the sport as a referee for a very long time. Wow. Condolences, of course, to his family and friends. Um, moving on briefly to the fights that were announced. Jacobs Ryder, meh, it's fine, I suppose, but Jacobs has not really made the most of the last couple of years. Feels yeah. like he's sputtering into irrelevance. Um, but uh, Chocolatito Estrada, nothing meh about that. Um, it, it's two full months away, and I am fully excited already. Uh, okay, let's wrap up the show with the top five list. Uh, two weeks ago, Kieran gave me an outside-the-box assignment. The all-time top five multi-sport boxers, either boxers who excelled or achieved in a second sport or standouts from another sport who tried boxing and did significantly better than Nate Robinson, Chad Ochocinco, etc. <laughs> um, this might be the most educational list we've done in terms of some things I learned while researching and things our listeners hopefully will learn over these next 10 minutes or so. Uh, and as far as my list goes, I don't want to say the order was arbitrary. It wasn't. Uh, I put some thought into it. But I guess I would say it feels kind of loose because uh, mm. you're comparing, you know, not the uh, cliched apples to oranges, but soccer players to basketball players. Right. And, and then you're trying to weigh the combined quality of their boxing and their other sport. Point is, I would expect someone else's order to look very different than mine. And I wouldn't argue too hard over any of this. All that said, I landed on a top six that I felt pretty good about in some order. Uh, I also have some additional honorable mentions, which we'll get to at the end, but I feel like these six separate themselves. So I'm going to break form and start with my number six, just because otherwise you'll spend the whole countdown waiting to hear his name. Um, he's the first person I thought of when you gave me the assignment. I kind of assumed he'd be top five, but after researching, 
ended up putting him at number six, just outside my top five. It is Roy Jones. Um, <laughs> far and away the best boxer on this list. No sense wasting any time with his boxing credentials. Um, and he famously played in a minor league professional basketball game the same day as a fight in 1996. He was considered to be a pretty good basketball player. Um, much, much better than Manny Pacquiao, for example. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, he wasn't a pro. He was just a very good recreational player. And it was kind of a publicity stunt. So I'm sticking him at number six, just outside my top five. Ah, yeah, Roy obviously was one of the people in my mind. I, I will say that when I made the assignment, I, I had like a few names that sort of immediately came to mind floating mm-hmm. around in there. Um, I then I didn't do like the sort of deep dive myself to come out with a, an alternative top five plus, uh, you know, honorable mentions. I just had those kept those names that I had in mind when I, when I set this. So. I expect to be as educated and informed by your list as everybody else. But Roy was absolutely somebody who I did have in mind when I made that list. Okay. All right. So at number five, now we're into the official list. I have one of the two names on my list that I'd barely heard of before researching this. It is British soccer player or footballer, if you prefer, uh, turned pro boxer Curtis Woodhouse. Um, As best I can tell, Woodhouse was not an elite soccer player, just a good, solid middling pro. Uh, He played for 15 years, the latter six overlapping with a professional boxing career that saw him go 24 and 7 with 13 KOs and win the British light welterweight title. He lost almost every time he stepped up to the likes of Derry Matthews and Frankie Gavin, but he was competent, a good European level fighter. Not world-class, but in terms of being taken seriously as a legit pro in two sports, you won't find many to compare with Woodhouse, so he grabs my number five spot. Yeah, and I'm super embarrassed by the fact that I didn't think of him at all when I I was setting the list, and and really he's such a great example. And I'm sure we'll have British listeners who will correct me or correct us or add more, but my recollection is that was an element of I mean, it makes it some controversy and also a little bit of mockery mm. when he made the announcement that he was going into boxing a little bit, that I think maybe he wasn't taken at all seriously, that he was considered to be a sideshow. And I think that he probably did better in boxing than maybe people expected that he would when he started. Again, I'm open to being corrected about that. But yeah, what a classic example. It wasn't exactly Lionel Messi, but I think he played three games in the Premier League, which is more than most soccer players ever do Mm -hmm. Uh, and he played in the level below that quite a bit so yeah pretty you know pretty decent perhaps better at the non-boxing than the boxing but Mm. um but yeah great example okay uh so for number four i am going right back to soccer again um same sport combo soccer and boxing different gender at number four i have katie taylor who Like Roy Jones, no need for me to waste time on her boxing resume. Our listeners know who she is. I would suspect she's on a Hall of Fame trajectory. She's a top three female pound-for-pounder, won Olympic gold, etc. Much more accomplished than Curtis Woodhouse in boxing. Uh, And as for soccer, from 2006 to 2009, she played on the Republic of Ireland's national team. Maybe, like women's boxing, women's soccer in a not-gigantic country is a bit of a shallow pool. Uh, but she was still good enough to make her country's national team. She must have been elite, I I would assume, capable of playing pro somewhere if she'd wanted to, but she chose boxing instead. Really hard to compare Taylor and Woodhouse from a soccer perspective, especially for me as a person whose soccer knowledge comes from a combination of watching his college team 25 years ago and watching Ted Lasso, Uh, but she beats uh, (laughs) Woodhouse handily on the boxing side, so I have her at number four. Well, you also know enough from me to know that Liverpool Football Club is objectively <laughs> the greatest soccer team in the world. So you do objectively, know that well. I, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, I mean, how great is that to actually be good enough to play in World Cup qualifiers for your country mm-hmm. and also be an Olympic gold medalist and world champion for your country in a completely different sport? I mean, that's just pretty remarkable, really, I think. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm keeping it in the female athlete realm at number three. And you gave me clearance last week to include people who crossed over from boxing to MMA or from MMA to boxing. 
I made a personal decision not to include kickboxers. Um, that one is maybe a little too similar to boxing, so I decided not to put serious thought into including Vitaly Klitschko or Lucia Riker or anyone else who was elite in both boxing and kickboxing. But MMA is different enough. So at number three, I have a woman just elected to the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Holly Holm. She's the only athlete to hold a UFC world title and a boxing world title. Admittedly, the value of a boxing quote-unquote world title varies, but Holm was legit. She beat Christy Martin in 05, Mary Jo Saunders in 08, lost to Anne-Sophie Mathis in 2011, but avenged it. Basically, from 2005 to 13, she was part of any conversation for best pound-for-pound women's boxer. And then she went to MMA, and in 2015, shocked and knocked out Ronda Rousey, who was undefeated and the biggest star in the sport at the time, probably either gender. Um, did Holm benefit from some shallow talent pools as compared to what Roy Jones was up against in boxing or what Curtis Woodhouse was up against in terms of trying to be an elite soccer player? Yeah, uh, but still, she reached pretty much the pinnacle of the female side of both combat sports, so I have her at number three. Yeah, the interesting thing, and Holly obviously was somebody that I did think about specifically when I said to you, you can, you know, include MMA right. um, fighters as well. That, and I'm curious to see who you have in your top two, uh, but it's someone, and perhaps one of the rare ones who arguably became more successful, and I think certainly more celebrated and famous mm-hmm. after the switch, like switched from boxing to another sport and then got a higher level of fame. I mean, all entirely due to that win over Ronda Rousey, right. of course. I mean, she was a very good boxer. She was very well known as being an excellent boxer and then made that switch to MMA and then sort of went off to another level. And I'm curious to see when we're done whether she'll be the only one who arguably has that greater level of fame and accomplishment outside of boxing. But I actually have no idea at all who your top two are, so we'll find <laughs> out. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh my number one, who I'll get to in a few minutes, is definitely someone you're familiar with. Maybe you're just not thinking of yet. But at number two, I have a name I was only vaguely familiar with before looking into this. I'd seen it here and there on the records of some more famous fighters, but had no idea of his full athletic background. My number two is Charlie Powell, who played five seasons in the NFL and was simultaneously a heavyweight contender, a fringe contender, perhaps, but still a contender at the dawn of a great heavyweight era, and he also happened to play minor league baseball and turned down an offer to try out for the Harlem Globetrotters. So a four-sport athlete, but really uh, football and boxing are, are the focus. In 1952... He became the youngest player in NFL history at age 19. Uh, He was a defensive lineman, played several years for the 49ers, and then came back in 1960 and 61 and played two seasons for the Raiders. And in boxing, his record doesn't look like much. It's it's Woodhouse level, uh, 25, 11, and 3, 17 KOs. But it includes one huge win. In 1959, he took on then number two ranked heavyweight Nino Valdez, back when rankings meant something, and knocked him down three times and out in the eighth round. And he went on to fight two of the all-time greats, Muhammad Ali in 1963 and Floyd Patterson in 64. Got stopped by both, but still, to get in the ring with Ali and Patterson, you know he was good truly world-class in both football and boxing, and facing no doubts about the depth of talent he was up against in either sport, I have Charlie Powell at number two. Wow, fantastic. Never heard of him, I'll be <laughs> honest with you. That's that's a terrific find. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. I genuinely had not heard of I had no idea that there was somebody who was competing at a pretty high level in another sport while actually also boxing, let alone against those kind of guys. That's really interesting. What a great career. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. And uh, all right, so I'm giving you your assignment for next time early now. Top five Charlie Powell fights. Start researching. <laughs> I know you're starting from a baseline of zero knowledge. So. All right, uh, let's get to number one. Um, not a beloved figure in the world of boxing, but this list is about athletic achievement. It's not a popularity contest. And if you're talking about being among the very best in two sports, he wasn't Roy Jones level in boxing, but he held a major title. And he was at one point the highest paid player in the entire Australia, New Zealand rugby league. I am, of course, talking about Anthony Mundine. Let's get the controversy out of the way. Uh, He said something about 9-11 very soon after 9-11 that was not well received. It was very ill-advised and made him a hated figure. That has no impact on his ranking here. He played 
professional rugby from 1993 to 2000. And as with soccer, I am not the person to tell you how good he was, but other sources I looked up indicated he was elite. I can't really tell you how elite, but highest paid player in a legit league tells me he was no chump. Probably he wasn't Peyton Manning, but he wasn't Ryan Leaf either. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, in boxing, he went 48 and 11 with 28 knockouts, won a super middleweight belt in 2003, lost it, regained it in 2007. Yeah, it's just an alphabet belt. He was never the actual king of the 168 pound division, but he was up there for a solid decade Fought the likes of Mikkel Kessler, Shane Mosley, Sven Aki, Danny Green, Antoine Eccles, Sam Solomon three times. As a boxer, he was way ahead of Charlie Powell and Curtis Woodhouse. And as a rugby player, he was miles ahead of Roy Jones as a basketball player, Mm -hmm. uh, and at least on par with everybody else on this list in their non-boxing sports, as best I can tell. So my number one, love him or hate him, is Anthony Mundine. Yeah, outstanding pick. Um, and it has slipped my mind when I set this, actually. And he's actually the, the perfect embodiment of this. And um, uh, yes, a, a controversial figure for whom we will always have that footage of him being knocked out by Sven Ock. <laughs> Indeed. I pro- it's hard to put at number one somebody who was knocked cold by Sven Atke. It, it <laughs> makes me wonder if I made the right choice, but everything else about him suggests that yes. he has the resume for this. So Yes. All right. Um, honorable mentions. Here's a fun one. Eddie Egan, uh, he won gold medals in both the Summer and Winter Olympics. Uh, He won gold in boxing and bobsled. Uh, But he doesn't make my list because he barely had a pro boxing career. Uh, As best I can tell, he had three bouts in 1921, 100 years ago. Uh, Two of them were four-round no contests. So he was officially just 1-0. Doesn't make the list. Um, I'll mention Joe Lewis, who was the first black man ever to play in a PGA Tour golf event. Uh, there's a fun fact I didn't know, but he was never a pro. He was just a high-profile amateur. Doesn't make the list. Um, then I'm going to group together two star football players who dabbled in pro boxing, Ed Tutal jones and Mark Gastineau. Uh, yeah. By all accounts, Tutal was pretty good as a boxer, uh, 6-0 and as a pro against limited opposition at heavyweight. Not world-class, but maybe comparable to where Jake Paul is now in terms of ability. Uh, And Gastineau fought for five years, went 15 and two with one no contest, but it's all tainted by some of his opponents allegedly being paid to take dives. Um, And then two more that I'll group together, highly touted heavyweight prospects who fell short. Seth Mitchell, a very good college football player who hurt his knee and turned to boxing and did well for a little while until opponents started finding his chin. And uh, and Michael Grant, who had a significantly better boxing career than Seth Mitchell, making it to a championship fight against Lennox Lewis before falling apart. And he was also a three-sport standout in high school, football, basketball, and baseball. He played college football and got interest from the Kansas City Royals as a pitcher, but wasn't quite good enough to go pro in any of those sports, so he turned to boxing instead. Mm. Yes, I, I certainly had, had thought very much about uh, Seth Mitchell. The only other name that I had in mind, and I don't know how good his non-boxing performances were or how talented he was, was Sergio Martinez, who I know played some soccer and oh, did some right. biking. But I, I don't know if he was him. actually very good at either of those or not. Right. Um, but he was the only other one that I thought that you've mentioned that I that that I had thought of. Hmm. Yeah, I I completely forgot about him. And in all of my researching of trying to come up with Google terms that would get me toward boxers (laughs) in other sports, uh, his name did not pop up anywhere. But now that you mentioned it, yeah, he definitely got noted for uh, competing in both of those sports. But like, yeah, I have, without having researched it, no idea if he was anywhere close to world-class in either. Certainly world-class as a boxer. We know that much. That must be certainly enough. But, you know, you get like a million points for, for the Charlie Powell thing, which I think is great. So, <laughs> All yeah. right, and a million Eddie, points. And oh. Eddie Egan, that's pretty great too. Do those right. a million points count in our picks competition? Can, are oh, they transferable? Can, they count for absolutely nothing. Just the safe and the knowledge that you have them. <laughs> okay, but... I, I reject that. I don't want that. <laughs> Take your points. You can have them back. That's, that's not the kind of reward you're looking for. Fair no. enough. Yes, nope. exactly. Well, that's all you're going to get on this podcast. Uh, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, our thanks again to Keith Eidek for joining us. Uh, we will be back in one week with our post-fight analysis of Friday's Showbox card and much more. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.